and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Stories Season 3. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Today we are talking about Season 3, Episode 1, Anne. This is the first of season premieres in Buffy that have a different tone than the rest of the season to come and of the series as a whole. I'll talk about the use of two entirely separate storylines, one about Buffy and one about her friends, and about fuzzy early plot turns, multiple possible themes, and whether the stakes are high enough for Buffy as the protagonist. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Anne was written and directed by Joss Whedon. This surprised me a little because even on this rewatch, I didn't quite warm to this episode as much as I had hoped I would, though there is a lot to appreciate. And I feel like having watched it critically from a story perspective that I understand it better, both what worked for me and what doesn't quite work as well as some of my favorite Buffy episodes do. Our opening conflict begins as so often is true in Buffy in the graveyard. A hand comes out of the dirt. A young woman stands over the grave. We don't see her face, but as soon as we hear her voice, we know that it is not Buffy. The young woman says, that's right, big boy, come and get it. It is Willow. The vampire emerges from the grave. He does some pretty stunning acrobatics, and we learn later that before he was turned into a vampire, he was on the tumbling team. Xander, Willow, and Oz struggle to subdue the vampire. We have this great buildup to a moment where the vamp is running away, and Oz throws a stake after it. It twirls in the air and bounces off a tombstone, and the vampire gets away. Xander turns to Willow and says, Come and get it, big boy. Willow explains that the Slayer always uses puns and wisecracking, and Willow thinks it throws the vampires off, but it's not as easy as it looks, and you try it. Xander says he was always amazed by Buffy's fighting, but feels like they took her punning for granted. And Willow says, Xander, past tense rule. He awkwardly says he only meant that in the past they took it for granted, but they won't when she gets back. So this starts with another great example, as we've seen so many before, of exposition through conflict. And we get a little bit more of that when Willow says she hopes that Buffy will just show up for school tomorrow. And Xander says she can't just show up, she got kicked out. 
So we know that Buffy is gone somewhere, has been gone for a while. Our friends don't know what she's doing or if or whether she's coming back. That she got kicked out and that school starts tomorrow. That is a lot for, um, we are not even at three minutes into the episode. And it does all come through a little bit of conflict between our friends rather than one of them just telling us what's happening. We also get a little foreshadowing for later in the episode because Oz looks a bit troubled about the idea of the first day of school and Willow comments, oh, you know, don't worry, I'll still have plenty of time to see you. The scene cuts and we see Buffy. There are rolling waves. She's at the ocean. It's sunny. She's standing in a pretty sundress on the beach. We quickly realize it is a dream because Angel appears behind her and puts his arms around her. Buffy says, stay with me. And Angel says, forever. That's the whole point. I'll never leave, not even if you kill me. So quick reminder of what happened last season. And it was a cameo to tease the fans. I remember watching and each of these little glimpses of Angel were so um, both heartbreaking. It brought back all Buffy's feelings and filled me with this sense of, is he coming back? How is he coming back? When will they actually let us really see Angel as part of a storyline rather than a dream or memory or flashback? So it was both exciting and kind of frustrating. The camera closes up on Buffy's face. She blinks. The camera pans back and the sound of the surf blends into the sound of street noises. Buffy is in a small one-room apartment on a busy street. That pan to the room was at 4 minutes 17 seconds in. Normally around here, we would see a story spark or inciting incident, what gets our story, our main plot moving. And it typically comes about 10% through, so that's where we are. Yet, I am not seeing something that truly starts our story here. What we've gotten is a backstory, reminders. We know Buffy killed Angel. She's living alone somewhere. She is isolated, and her friends don't know where she is. The scene then switches to a diner. Five minutes, 13 seconds in. Buffy is in a waitress uniform. I can't help seeing this as an homage to the Terminator, where Sarah Connor begins as a waitress in a very similar sort of environment and uniform. Buffy takes an order from a couple of guys who are pretty much harassing her, making crude comments. One slaps her butt as she walks away. And there is this, this pause, this ominous music, but Buffy just keeps going. At the next table, a young couple, they have their arms around each other, and they ask what can they get for a handful of change. The young man calls Buffy the name that's on her name tag, which is Anne. Lily, the young woman, wants cake, and Ricky, the young man, says, no, they need to eat healthy. How about pie? They show Buffy their interlocking tattoos. Each has half a heart with the other's name on it. Buffy says, it's nice and permanent, and Ricky says, forever. 
I mean, that's the whole point. So this is six minutes, 41 seconds in. Could this be a story spark, that echo of what Angel said? It, it certainly sets off an emotional reaction in Buffy because she, after taking the order, goes to another waitress, asks her to cover for her, and leaves. But I, I don't know that it drives the story in any way. I should have mentioned before that, Lily looks at Buffy and says, hey, do I know you? And Buffy says she doesn't think so. So that maybe is a spark because we'll find out that Lily does in fact know Buffy and comes and finds her later. Initially on watching this and even on typing up my notes, I thought that that was not really a story spark because that recognition alone would not trigger a main plot if something doesn't happen to Ricky later. If we see the main plot as Buffy fighting evil, fighting what turns out to be a demon um, or a number of them. Just as I was reviewing my notes right before recording though, I started to see that perhaps the main plot here is really Buffy's transition from isolation, not just from her friends, but from everybody in this new life that she meets. That transition from that to reconnecting, not just with herself, but with other people, and that sends her ultimately home. So if we see that as the main plot, then Lily recognizing her is a sort of story spark, because that will drive that story, as we'll see. Even so, this is pretty late for a story spark. So I think a bit of why this episode, much as I love many parts of it, never quite works for me, is that it, it feels like the story just takes a very long time to begin. Which I am also doing by spending so much time just on the beginning of the episode. We go back to the library and there are lots of students in there getting books. Giles, as he is checking things out, tells Willow he hopes they're being careful in trying to slay vampires. She reassures him that don't get killed is part of their mission statement. Cordelia comes in. She has been away for the summer at a nightmare resort that made you have organized fun and ordered you around. And she asks if Xander is around, if her hair looks okay, and if he met anyone over the summer. Then she answers her own question and says, oh no, who would he meet? All there are are monsters in Sunnydale. And she has a moment of doubt because she says, well, but he's always been attracted to monsters. And again, she asks Willow, how's my hair? So more conflict, bringing out exposition here, maybe a sort of minor subplot story spark of Cordelia and Xander reuniting and Cordelia's anxiousness about it or eagerness, perhaps we'd say. Oz appears, Willow is confused, thinking he came to visit her on her first day at school, but then she sees he has books. So remember, Oz was a year ahead, so he was a senior last year and should have graduated. 
And he says to Willow, remember when I didn't graduate? Because he missed some, uh, I think he got an incomplete. And Willow says, yeah, that's what summer school was for. And he says, remember when I didn't go. She is not too amused. He was hoping uh, she would find it sort of endearing and quirky. And she tells him later she's trying to get there, but she is uh, more on the concerned side. Xander finds the two of them and asks if they've seen Cordelia. He is excited to see her. And he starts to say, how's my, and Willow says, your hair is fine. We then get a fun uh, comment by a side character, Larry, who we met last season. And he's saying to a football teammate, if we can focus, keep discipline, and not have quite so many mysterious deaths, Sunnydale is going to rule. I enjoy this line. It is both a joke, a wink to the audience, and catches up anyone new to the show about the general atmosphere of Sunnydale High and also tells us that people in the school do have an awareness. Everyone realizes the danger of being at Sunnydale High. Cordelia and Xander finally see each other and their conversation is very flat. It's uh, something like, hey, hey, good summer? Cool, whatever and they leave. In the question and answer for patrons, I talked about dialogue and how typically you would drop out greetings like, hello, how are you, and goodbye, see you later, except where it serves a specific purpose. And here it does because we have seen both Cordelia and Xander separately so excited to see each other and concerned that the other perhaps will not share their feelings. And the result is this: these greetings that don't convey any of that emotion, and yet we as the audience know that they're both trying to play it cool and then disappointed that the other seems so unaffected by their reunion. The scene switches to Buffy. We are about 10 minutes, 41 seconds in. Buffy is walking in the street. She still wears her waitress uniform, but she has her uh, like a light coat on over it. She passes a guy who is giving out flyers. He hands one to a kid who is sitting on a curb. And this is Ken. We will meet him later. I am sure the first time through, I thought that was just part of the ambiance of the street. I always enjoy how the writers and directors work in these aspects of the story that often in the first watch feel like they are just setting a tone or um, adding to the overall scene and we later find out are really important. An old man is huddled in the doorway. Buffy passes him and he says twice, I'm no one. At about 11 minutes in, we get some more exposition through conflict. Giles is on the phone in his office. He says, thank you, hangs up, rushes out, and tells Willow and Xander that a friend of his in Oakland heard about a girl fending off vampires a week ago. And Xander asks, what's different from the last nine leads? Giles falters a bit and says, there's a meal on this flight. But he and Willow agree that he has to try. After he leaves, Willow says, you don't think maybe he'll find her? And Xander says, I think he'll find her when she wants 
to be found. This catches us up on how hard Giles has been looking for Buffy. All the same, we are nearing, uh, we're actually past the one quarter point of the episode. We're right about there. It's a 44 minute, seven second episode. And it just, it feels like something bigger should be happening here. Yet we are getting more exposition. I love knowing that Giles is taking every flight. He is going everywhere to try to find Buffy. But I feel like that is something that I assume Giles would be doing or that I could have been told more quickly. So it's a scene I love and at the same time the placement of it in the story contributes to my feeling like I am waiting for this story to start. I love seeing all my favorite characters and yet I'm waiting. So now we come to what maybe is our one quarter twist. If you've been listening so far to the podcast, you know that's what I call that turn that happens most of the time at about 25% through the episode. It should come from outside the protagonist and spin the story in a new direction. In TV, it does sometimes come later. In a book, you'll almost always see it a quarter of the way through. TV varies more because of fitting in commercials. Here, we're at nearly 12 minutes through. Buffy is walking at night. Lily sees her and calls Anne and gets no response and then says Buffy. And Buffy stops. Lily reminds her how they knew each other. Lily was part of that vampire club that Buffy's former friend Ford organized that worshipped vampires. And she was calling herself Chanterelle at the time. She thought it was exotic. Buffy is a little concerned about Lily knowing her identity. And Lily reassures her that uh, she's not going to turn her in. She knows what it's like when you have to get lost. And Buffy shares with her that she chose Anne because it's her middle name. Lily says Ricky picked her name from a song. And Lily tells Buffy about a rave. If Buffy has any money, they could go. Buffy very awkwardly says she doesn't think so. She wants to be alone. She tries to give Lily money, and Lily seems a bit offended at that. She She was trying to connect, not get money. So this is where on all my other watches and until I reviewed my notes, I still thought, okay, I am not seeing anything that turns the story here. But if, as I mentioned in the beginning, we see the main plot here not as fighting evil, but as Buffy's shift from isolation to reconnection, This does spin the story because Lily has come from outside of Buffy, has seen her, and has connected with her. Buffy is a bit reluctant, but she does engage with Lily, sharing how she chose her name, talking about Lily's choice of name, asking about Lily. And we get the sense this is the first time Buffy has really done this. So now we get a little more of the um, what will turn into the evil fighting monster plot because as Lily and Buffy are kind of uh, being very awkward with each other over the money issue, this old man with thinning gray hair bumps into Buffy. She asks if he's okay and he says, I'm no one and runs into the street. At 15 minutes, six seconds, 
happens and a car comes and almost hits him, but Buffy runs and shoves him out of the way and she gets hit herself. So even this, I take back what I just said, because even this isn't really a one-quarter turn or any sort of plot turn for that demon plot. Because while the man's I'm no one comment is a clue for later, this doesn't start any kind of real story for Buffy. In fact, it feels more like a setup of that monster plot, and we are well beyond the one-quarter point here. The driver jumps out, the one who hit Buffy and is very concerned, and people gather, and they're all asking if she's okay. And Buffy is overwhelmed by everyone asking her how she is, and she runs off. Around the corner, she almost runs into the guy we saw earlier with the flyers. He acts very concerned and asks what she's doing there. He says she has the look of the kids around there who had to grow up too fast. And he gives her a flyer for family home and tells her, you might find something you're missing. She says she's okay. And he asks then, why is she here? It's not a good place for a kid. You get old fast. Despair drains the life out of kids. And it's the last stop. For a lot of them. We then get this uh, very uh, plaintive, sad music and a montage of young people living on the street. In a way, this is camouflage for the fact that Ken, the guy giving out the flyers, is evil because it seems more like he is there just to segue into this montage and or to make a point about kids living on the street. The montage also has never quite worked for me because I am not sure how it fits with the theme of the episode. It is a really important issue how many people are living on the street and particularly teenagers, but the episode doesn't seem to do a whole lot with that. These young people are part of the demon story, but there doesn't seem to be a real answer or resolution to that. We'll see as we go, and if you disagree, please let me know. The music segues us back to the bronze, but before we go there, I am going to take a quick break. First, thank you to everyone for coming back for season three, and a special thank you to patrons who support the show on Patreon. The latest patron-only question and answer was posted last week on Patreon. Also, if you find this discussion of plot and story elements helpful, you might like my audiobook, Super Simple Story Structure, A Quick Guide to Plotting and Writing Your Novel. You can find it wherever you buy audiobooks, including on Audible, or if your library allows borrowing of audiobooks, and many of them do now, you can request it from your library and borrow it for free. So we are back. That uh, music playing during the montage continues on into the next scene at the bronze where Xander comments, 
boy, I'm glad we showed up for a depressing night. He and Willow are slumping in uh, a couple of couches. Willow wonders what she's doing now. And Xander starts talking about Cordelia and how she probably met someone else over the summer. And Willow gives him this look and he says, it's possible she's talking about Buffy. Willow agrees, it's possible. Xander says the slang is also not going well. Oz brings over drinks and he says, well, you know, he thinks they're getting a rhythm down. Xander disagrees because they're still losing half the vampires. And Oz says, yeah, but rhythmically. Then Xander gets an idea. What they need is bait. We switch scenes. We're 18 minutes, 38 seconds in. Joyce answers the door. She had hurried to it when she heard a knock, and she is clearly disappointed that it is Giles, not Buffy. He tells her that Oakland didn't pan out. Joyce can hardly leave the house. She's afraid Buffy will call and need her. At that time, there were cell phones, but most people did not have them. Giles tries to reassure her, saying Buffy is the most capable child I've ever known. As I commented a few times last season, Giles referring to Buffy as a child I see as part of why we never have any sort of creepy or uncomfortable vibe about Giles hanging out with these kids all the time, being a mentor to this young woman. Here, I, I do think we re-emphasize that, but we also do it, or at least the effect of it to me, is to emphasize this struggle that Buffy has had with being a child, a teenager, on the verge of a adulthood and yet also already so much of an adult having to shoulder so much responsibility having to make these terrible choices Joyce expresses regret about how the last thing she and Buffy did was fight Giles tells her don't blame yourself and Joyce says I don't I blame you. She goes on to say he was such a huge influence on Buffy that he had this relationship behind Joyce's back. She feels like Giles has taken Buffy away from her and her voice is breaking and she is distraught. And I love the way that the actress plays it, the way it was directed. It could have seemed accusatory. There is some blame and accusation there, but it is more my heart breaks for Joyce because it is her recognition of how much about her daughter she did not know and how close Giles and Buffy were, the role that Giles played and that Joyce didn't know about it and didn't or wasn't able to serve that role for her daughter. Giles is very still when she speaks and by that stillness, I feel like I can tell it breaks his heart too. And he says, I didn't make Buffy who she is. And Joyce says, and who exactly is she? So here we have the theme of the episode, I think, or at least the intended theme of identity. And it is made explicit here. We already saw it in the names. Buffy is not using her own name. She is being Anne. Lily is a name that Ricky chose for her. And she tells us she had a couple other names before that. We don't find out her name from birth. And then we have this, this older man uh, saying, I'm no one. I'm no one. So there is, is definitely this issue of identity. 
how well that plays out, I have some questions about. But this comment by Joyce seems to uh, tell us, yes, this is the theme. Back at the diner, Lily comes in. Buffy is filling salt shakers or sugar shakers. And Lily says Ricky is gone. She wants Buffy's help. And at first, Buffy pushes her away saying, you know, did you try the police? Have you looked in his usual places? Lily can't go to the police because Ricky's skipped out on parole. She could just be causing trouble for him. And she outright asks for help. Buffy says she can't. And Lily says, but that's who you are and stuff. You help people. Buffy says she's sorry. And Lily goes on to say, you know how to do stuff. Buffy claims she doesn't anymore. And Lily responds, but I don't know what to do. This feels, we are at the midpoint of the episode, yet this feels more like the inciting incident or story spark to me. The thing that sets the story off, or maybe a one-quarter turn that sends it in a new direction, because now it will be about finding Ricky. However, we are at the midpoint, and here is where the plot points feel more clear to me, because we do immediately get a midpoint commitment. So normally at the midpoint in a well-structured story, we will see either the protagonist fully committing to the quest, throwing caution to the wind, or suffering a major reversal, or both. And here at 21 minutes, 15 seconds in, Buffy, who has been looking down at what she's doing and not looking at Lily as they talk, when Lily says, but I don't know what to do, Buffy looks up at her, makes eye contact, and we know that she is going to help. What's really interesting here is this is definitely not the kind of midpoint commitment we are used to seeing for Buffy because normally her commitment would be would be very large and groundbreaking. It would be so significant on uh, sort almost a cosmic scale. I mean, okay, not every episode is on a cosmic scale, but something almost always very dramatic. And here it is Buffy looks up. And agrees to help. Something that she did almost reflexively in season two to help people. And this shows something that I think is, is really important, which is the nature of the commitment. What makes it large in scope and enough to drive the rest of the story isn't how big that commitment is or how strong it is on a sort of objective scale or as compared to other stories. It's how big is it for that character, for who that protagonist is, and where the protagonist is in life. It reminds me a little of a concept from my other life as a lawyer. We talk about something called the eggshell plaintiff. The plaintiff is someone in a lawsuit who is seeking to recover for some type of injury. And if you get a plaintiff who has had a lot of issues before, you know, maybe they've broken bones before, or they have a previous back injury. If you hurt that person again, you know, there's a car crash or whatever it is and their injuries are so much worse because of those previous problems that doesn't get you off the hook it, it you are responsible for the fact that you made those injuries so much worse and you don't get to claim well but if that person had been healthy when my car hit them um, this wouldn't have been a big problem so that's the eggshell plaintiff and I think of it in terms of a protagonist if you have an eggshell protagonist which Buffy is in a way in this episode she is not physically injured and vulnerable but emotionally injured and vulnerable emotionally 
emotionally broken and barely pieced back together. She's the eggshell Buffy. For her, that simple act of looking up, meeting Lily's eyes, connecting, and agreeing to help is a massive step. It is a huge throwing caution to the wind because she has really been keeping herself separate and protecting herself. So that's a great lesson if you are writing a protagonist who either has this sort of injury or is limited in scope of what they can do. For your character, it could be a big deal simply to stand up and yell at someone or to to walk out of a room if you have built up that for that character that is a very difficult thing to do. Lily and Buffy go to a clinic where Lily says she and Ricky often donate blood. The nurse there remembers Ricky and goes to check and see if he's been in lately when they ask. And Buffy says to Lily, uh, this will probably go faster if we split up. And Lily responds, can I come with you? And Buffy says, okay, when did I lose you on the whole splitting up thing? This also goes to a theme that I see in the episode, intended or not, of self-reliance. Lily has been saying how Ricky takes care of her. Now she's gone to Buffy for help, good choice. But she wants to stay with Buffy. She doesn't want to be left on her own, even temporarily, to go find Ricky. Or at least her default is to say, can I go with you? So is this a different theme for the episode? We already have this identity theme. And now we have kind of this self-reliance theme. And maybe they are two sides of the same coin. Or maybe they will connect later. Because part of Lily choosing a new identity is willingness to choose one for herself. Not to let someone else choose it for her. And to choose an identity where she does take care of herself. So maybe they fit together. But I, I feel like this is all also part of why the episode for me falters a bit because I'm unclear what it is about. They two in fact split up. Buffy is searching alone. In a darkened warehouse she finds the body of an old man and the name Lily is in half a heart. It is the exact tattoo that she saw that Ricky had. So we get that reversal very shortly after the midpoint. Buffy commits. We get a major reversal. It's kind of odd given that it felt like it took so long to get this story moving and now we already have a commitment we have a reversal and we cut to a commercial at 23 and a half minutes in Lily is waiting at Buffy's apartment she is holding a little stuffed duck I love this element because we have seen Buffy and stuffed animals she had uh, Mr. Gordo her stuffed pig she mentioned to Kendra when Kendra named her steak that remind me to get you a stuffed animal and now we see that despite the spareness of Buffy's life right now she either brought with her or bought herself this little stuffed um, duckling and it shows Lily's worry that she is holding this small stuffed animal for comfort as she waits. Buffy comes back, tells Lily that she thinks that Ricky is dead, and Lily says, but he takes care of me. We're gonna get a place. It's a good way to show her grief and denial, the way often we react at tragic news. Uh, we just can't take it in all at once. So she's saying, you know, this, this can't be. Buffy says there is something else going on. 
The man she found was old, about 80, and Lily argues that's not Ricky. But Buffy is sure, and something drained him of life. But it wasn't a vampire, because vampires can't accelerate aging. This makes Buffy think of blood and ask when Ricky last donated. Lily, though, is is still having trouble taking this in, and she says, but he didn't do anything wrong. Why would this happen to him? Buffy tells her that's not the point. Things happen. You can't close your eyes and hope they'll go away. And it seems she is partly talking to herself, but it's unclear. It, it, the close your eyes reference, you know, could be a reference to that heartbreaking moment when she tells Angel to close his eyes and she has to kill him. But the he didn't do anything wrong. I'm not sure how that resonates. Is Buffy thinking of herself? She didn't do anything wrong, but these things happen. Is she thinking of Angel? Angel, as Angelus, certainly did many things wrong. Angel himself did not. To me, there's an odd disconnect here. Why is that particularly resonating with Buffy? Other than that, she has been in denial herself, unwilling to deal with her grief and her sadness and her anger. Lily then asks, is it because of Buffy? She knows about these things and she could have brought something with her. Now Buffy gets more angry and she says she didn't bring anything with her. She didn't ask Lily to come to her for help. All she wanted was to be left alone. And she says, if you can't deal, then don't lay it on me. I get her anger. It seems to fit also the anger of someone who is talking to herself as well but I'm unclear who is Buffy blaming is Buffy blaming uh, I talked about in becoming part two you know, maybe she was angry at her friends for that kick his ass message that she thought came from Willow or angry at her mom for not supporting her for basically kicking her out when she found out who Buffy was maybe but that isn't really incorporated into this episode so that isn't really clear to me what Buffy is trying to say to herself here other than you've got to deal with things you you can't pretend that they didn't happen and also Buffy has brought something with her in that she has brought herself and she has brought all those feelings of anger and grief and guilt with her she couldn't flee them and leave them behind in Sunnydale Lily leaves Buffy sighs she looks sad outside in the street Lily encounters Ken he is giving out flyers he sees she's upset and asks if she's okay she mentions Ricky and he tells her whoever said Ricky was dead is wrong he's no more dead than I am which turns out to be true in a way Annie says of Ricky he's with us now Buffy breaks into the clinic. She's looking through the records and she says to herself, candidate for what? From the shadows, the nurse asks what she's doing. And I love Buffy's answer. It's much more like herself. So we do see this progression of Buffy coming back, not just helping people, but a little bit of her in-your-face kind of attitude because she just says, breaking into your office and going through your private files, candidate for what? The nurse 
nurse says Buffy's getting herself into a lot of trouble, and Buffy says she doesn't want trouble. She just wants to be left alone and quiet in a room with a fireplace and a tea cozy. And I don't even know what a tea cozy is, but I want one. And I think Buffy's comment is something that anyone who has been through significant trauma or a really difficult extended time can empathize with that feeling of, I just need things to stop. I just want to be alone somewhere and sit by a fire and not do anything and feel maybe not safe, but feel like I have stepped away. The nurse finally gives her the names or the nurse finally tells Buffy that she gives them the names of the healthy ones. At 28 and a half minutes in, Ken tells Lily she looks nice. They're in this inner room. She's wearing this gown. Looks like it might be burlap for the cleansing, which is, uh, she says, like a baptism. And she'll see Ricky right after it. So it's clearly her motive for doing it. And the room is dark. There's candles and tiny lights all around. And she's in front of this pool. We then switch back to the graveyard. Cordelia is supposed to be bait, but she and Sander start bickering. Willow listens from the other side of a hedge and rolls her eyes. Behind her, a vampire looms behind Willow, but nobody notices it. I do enjoy seeing our friends again, but this too, normally the logic of everything in Buffy is so clear. And here to me, it's really not. How does Cordelia being bait help them catch vampires? I suppose, you know, having one more person certainly helps. Maybe it's that they hide and the vampire comes out and doesn't realize it's people who want to fight. But yeah, I I don't know. It, It doesn't quite work other than obviously we know Xander just wants to bring Cordelia into the group again and she wants to be part of the group again though they are both denying it. Back to Lily at the edge of the pool we flip to the outer room of the center where Buffy is knocking on the door. She's trying to uh, get in by in a very stilted way telling the guy who answers that she just woke up looked in the mirror and I thought hey what's with all the sin I need to change and she rattles off some things she thinks will resonate with the guy and ends with and that loud music us kids listen to nowadays this guy looks very skeptical and Buffy finally says I just suck it undercover where's Ken so this too fits our identity theme because we have Buffy embracing more of who she is and in the process recognizing that she is not good at pretending to be someone else. So I commented about that last season a couple times. We saw how Buffy just was not good at undercover. Here she recognizes it, which is very fitting in an episode where she has been trying to be someone else. Lily reaches her hand into the pond just as Buffy bursts into that her room with her hands on her hips she demands that Ken tell her how does he make them old does he feed on youth but Lily is pulled in from below she yells Buffy tries to dive in after her Ken grabs Buffy to stop her but Buffy struggles and her momentum pitches both Ken and her into the pool so this is our three-quarter turn it's the last major plot point it grows from the midpoint or it should but takes the story in another new direction. So here at 31 minutes, 17 seconds in, Buffy and 
and Lily land on this concrete floor below and Ken is a ways away from them and he's saying my face and he says do you have any idea how hard that is to glue on and he peels it off and underneath he is a demon he calls for the guards Buffy and Lily end up in this vast underground area it's it's dim we can't quite see what's happening but there are sparks from welding there are um fires here and there it looks like it's some kind of an iron mill or steel mill everyone but Buffy uh, who is working they're all in these rough gowns or outfits like Lily's and Ken says welcome to my world and knocks Buffy out with a club and we go to a commercial so this did come from that commitment Buffy made at the midpoint to help Lily and from the reversal of Ricky finding Ricky dead because that's how Ken was able to to lure Lily in. It turns the story because before, well, two things. Obviously, they have been brought to this other world, which is a big turn. But we thought Ken, for the brief time that we had to think about it, that he might be some sort of a soul-sucking demon or feeding off youth, as Buffy says. But now we see there is some sort of larger plot, some larger reason that he's taking these kids. Back to Xander and Cordelia who are still bickering. He asks how long it took her to forget him. She says, oh, Mr. Faithful probably met up with some hot little Inca mummy girl. Yeah, I heard about her. The vampire attacks Willow. She screams. She and Oz fight. Xander jumps into the fight. The vampire gets a hold of Xander. They're on the ground. Cordelia stakes the vampire from behind. It dusts and she falls forward onto Xander who is lying on his back. We get romantic music and they kiss and are reunited. This drastic switch in tone from that darkness in that underworld to this purposely heightened kind of melodramatic reunion tone switches in Buffy usually work really well for me this one felt jarring I tried to figure out why and I think it's because usually our mix in tone happens with the same characters within the same scene so it might be Buffy you know quipping or Xander making this right comment and maybe Giles will yell at him for it but it's funny in the midst of that same scene where they're dealing with horror or tragedy tragedy or trauma and here we are flipping from one to the other I'm I'm sure that is purposeful to highlight how isolated Buffy is from her friends how removed but that that doesn't make me love it maybe that works really well for for some of the audience I don't know Buffy wakes up in a cage. She's still in her street clothes. She's with Lily. Lily says uh, she, meaning herself, belongs here. It's hell. Buffy says it's not. But Ken is lurking and he tells them it is hell because what is hell but the absence of hope? And he tells Lily she's been heading here all her life, just like Ricky was. And that Ricky forgot her eventually, but it took years. And this is where he explains that time moves differently here. A hundred years is only a day on earth. So Lily will die of old age before anyone looks for her. Not that anyone will. That's why she was chosen. Buffy says he didn't choose her. And Ken says, no, but... 
I know you, Anne. So afraid, so pathetically determined to run away from whatever it is you used to be. To disappear. Congratulations, you got your wish. The guard brings the group of new humans out in a row, tells them all they're allowed to do is work, not complain, not laugh. Whatever they were before doesn't matter. You're no one now. To the first young person in line, he says, who are you? The boy gives a name and the guard clubs him to the ground. Next is Lily, who keeps her eyes on the ground and in response to who are you says, no one. So more explicit on this theme of identity. This happens with another young person and then the guard gets to Buffy and says, who are you? And she looks up and says, I'm Buffy the vampire slayer, and you are? So now we are back to our typical Buffy tone. He tries to hit her, she gets the club and fights him, then leads the humans through the darkness towards that platform where she and Lily were brought in. It's a very large, very dark space, so uh, no one else seems to notice them, but as they gather under this wrought iron staircase, Buffy tells Lily that they will run into guard now Buffy will create a distraction and Lily needs to lead the others out but Lily doesn't want Buffy to leave her Buffy says Lily can do this because I said so this may be where Lily's identity story falters a bit for me like why is Buffy telling her she can do this the answer to her identity story I'll talk about that a little bit more at the end maybe there is a reason Buffy starts to run an alarm goes off but Lily pauses and says sorry that she blamed Buffy Buffy tells her this can wait but Lily says in case we die I really like Lily I like that she she has this kind of intrinsic kindness and caring about her that even though she's thinking she'll probably die and she can't do this, she wants Buffy to know that she is sorry that she does not blame Buffy. Now we are moving to the climax. It starts around 37 minutes, 40 seconds in. There's a lot that happens here. Buffy runs. She lures some of the guards. She fights them. As Lily gets others up the stairs, Buffy gets a scythe from the guard. And there is a great shot of her holding it, looking very fierce. Spotlights crossing over her. And this is in the credits for quite a long time. We have more of a fight sequence. Ken is at the top. He's shocked. He's saying humans don't fight back. That's how this works. And this is yet perhaps another theme is the episode saying, well, you just have to fight back, band together. Does it relate to who he thinks humans are? So this is another thing that for me muddles a bit, whatever it is the episode is saying. But Ken catches Lily and he drags her out. He's on the top of that platform looking down. He has a knife at her neck, just as Buffy is about to get out herself. And he yells out that if any of them fight, they all die. This too makes me wonder, because why, why don't any of these humans fight? They have seen that people work and work and work till they get old and they're thrown away. What is the incentive for them not to try to escape? There seems to be no good alternative, so why not take the chance? Ken is taunting Buffy, saying he'd like to slice her guts out, and she is sparring with him. And as this is happening, because Ken doesn't see 
see Lily as a threat, he lets go of her. And the first time I watched, I'm not sure I really even noticed that. It's very subtle. It comes out of his character. It's very believable. And so he is going on about the price of rebellion and Lily pushes him off the platform. It is my favorite moment. And he falls down. He's yelling. He hits the floor. Buffy slugs the nearest guard. She climbs up this heavy chain to the top of the platform. And all of them run. Their way is barred by a heavy iron grate. Buffy manages to lift it, but she is struggling. Everyone squeezes under. At the last second, Ken follows them. And Buffy lets the grate drop. It spears both his legs. So he's kind of face down, both his legs speared. Now we're moving to the falling action where we tie up loose ends. Ken getting speared by the grate, we could see that as part of falling action because I really do see Lily pushing him down as the key part of the climax. But probably that is part of the climax, this, the pinning of Ken, because we do need to completely neutralize him. Either way, once he's pinned, uh, he is a loose end to take care of. And Buffy says, hey, Ken, want to see my impression of Gandhi? And she clubs him on the head and kills him. Lily says, Gandhi? And Buffy says, well, you know, if he was really pissed off. And then together, the two of them help everyone out up through that pool. Gandhi joke, it doesn't feel quite like Buffy, though I can't really articulate why that is. And probably that's purposeful because Buffy has gone on this journey, but is still not quite there. In the next scene, Buffy and Lily are in Buffy's one-room apartment. The rent has been paid for three weeks, and Buffy arranged for Lily to take over her waitressing job. Buffy assures her she'll check up on her. Lily says she's not great at taking care of herself, and Buffy tells her it gets easier, it takes practice. Again, this seems to go to maybe not self-reliance, maybe yet another theme of taking care of yourself. And my question is, was Buffy not taking care of herself? Is that what this is about? Clearly, she was taking care of herself physically, but maybe it is she was not taking care of herself emotionally but did it take practice because she seemed to just not be doing it not be doing it not be doing it and then the events of the story kind of pushed her into re-embracing who she is I mean she didn't have to re-embrace it she made a choice but it happened very quickly after that so I I just don't know if that line works then Lily sees Buffy's name tag her Anne name tag on the uniform and asks if she can be Anne and they both smile and that I I just love that does fit because now Lily is choosing her identity at 43 minutes 27 seconds in Joyce is at home working on her dishwasher there's a knock at the door she starts to hurry then sighs and we can see she's probably thinking she's being foolish it's never been Buffy but as she nears the door something tells her it is she moves faster she opens the door and she sees Buffy and they hug and this scene always makes me cry and I put it all to the expressions on the faces of the two actresses because they don't say anything and we just see so much in their faces and they embrace. 
And that is the end of the episode. There's no DVD commentary for this episode. I really wish there were, because I would like to know why Joss Whedon made the choices he did. So much of it feels like a lot of setup for the next season, getting Buffy back home, starting to repair relationships. But there is the monster plot, the demon plot does not quite work, doesn't quite have momentum. The emotional story, now that I look at it, it does if we see it as that story of Buffy re-choosing her own identity and her journey back home. The Lily subplot, I like it because I like Lily so much. It does seem to be a mix of self-reliance and identity. She sees Buffy and by sort of modeling herself after Buffy and through Buffy's encouragement that she can do things on her own, Lily begins to do that. And she chooses this identity. Yes, it is still one that initially Buffy created, but it's not because she is following someone. Her first one she told us about was Sister Son. She was following, I think, a preacher, and then she was in that that group that worshipped vampires, and then Ricky chose her name Lily. So this is, as far as we know, the first time that Lily has made a choice for herself. The whole of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, though, usually works best for me when we have both the emotional story and a strong evil fighting story, a strong plot, so that one informs the other, or even if they are in separate tracks, we still have those very strong plot turns and points. And here in the demon story, we don't really have that. We have, it's very slow to get going. Then when it does, everything kind of happens at once. Even Buffy figuring out the connection to the blood bank, it's just, oh, something's draining them. Vampires can't do that. Oh, maybe it's something in the blood. We'll go to the blood bank. And that leads her almost immediately to Ken, which leads her almost immediately into that underground world. There may also be an issue with Buffy as a protagonist. I talked about last season, a protagonist should have a goal, be actively pursuing it throughout the episode, be the main viewpoint character, and have the most at stake. Here, Buffy's active goal goal is to be left alone. It's active in the sense that she does pursue it, deliberately isolate herself. She resists Lily's attempts to connect with her up until that midpoint. So she has an active goal she pursues, but this does show the challenge of having a character with a sort of negative goal, the goal of withdrawing, the goal of disengaging. It can be done for sure, but it it does present some challenges for the writer, mainly uh, a sort of lack of momentum. The fact that initially, and on many watchings, I didn't really even see that that was what the story, the main story was. Buffy's definitely the viewpoint point character in anything that is uh, in her story you know not the subplots with our friends does she have the most at stake this is challenging as well because in the demon story she doesn't you know ricky dies lily could be imprisoned for the rest of her life yeah in theory that could happen to Buffy, but given her physical strengths, which have not gone away, I I don't ever feel that worried about Buffy getting stuck there. Her emotional stakes 
are very high in the sense of if she were to not save those people, not save Lily, that would be a massive loss for her. But it's hard to to feel it with this. I feel like I don't have that sense of her having enough at stake. But if we really see it as her needing to embrace her own identity in order to get back home or to choose her identity again and that emotional journey from isolation to reconnection, then she does have a lot at stake because Buffy could end up just withdrawing for the rest of her life. I think the other problem I have with that as the stakes is we haven't really dealt with why Buffy chose to isolate herself in the first place. Her grief over killing Angel and having to do it, her guilt, probably her anger at her friends and at her mom. All of this, this episode, I don't see any way it resolves that. So we left Buffy in one place at the end of the last episode, and I don't know, like, yes, we are dealing with what she did in response to that, but she doesn't deal with those things. So it's setting up conflicts to come, but that means that this episode feels a bit unresolved. So that is it for this episode, other than spoilers. I hope you will come back next Monday for Dead Man's Party. I look forward to talking about it with you. And thank you so much for listening. So spoilers, I will try to be quick because I have said a lot about Anne on premieres with different tones. We'll see that again to a lesser extent in season four, the first episode when Buffy is in college. And again, she is somewhat isolated from her friends. She is not feeling like herself. It is a very different feel from the rest of the season and from the rest of Buffy with Buffy feeling all these doubts about her capabilities, about how she fits. Season five starts with the episode about Dracula. And that one really feels almost uh, outside of Buffy. Some of it's an homage to Dracula. Some of it is because... At the end, we will get Dawn inserted into this world. So I'm excited to get to talk about it and see, was that deliberate to kind of tell us this season is going to be different? Not because Dracula will be part of it, because he won't, but there is going to be someone new, someone we did not expect to be in the world of Buffy, much as Dracula feels like he does not fit. The season six two-part premiere I talked about before feels different to me from the rest of Buffy, although that's for a different reason. It's because a fair amount of it feels like filler. It though also is much darker. It tells us that Buffy is going to take a very dark turn and it foreshadows much of season six where Buffy is in emotionally a very dark place. Season seven as well is almost a a standalone because we get Buffy seeing Dawn off for her first day of school at the new high school that has been rebuilt. And it's more about Dawn. She connects with these other two students who I don't believe we ever see again. So it too feels like a setup. It feels like you could almost lift it out of the season. My memory of that is vague though. So if you are in your head saying, no, no, that's not it at all, uh, you might be right. I haven't watched it in quite a while. So we'll see. I talked before about the character of Anne, Lily, who becomes Anne, going on to Angel. So I won't talk in depth about that. But I did notice here, uh, before I had thought about 
the setup of it in terms of, yes, makes sense. She would become this character on Angel who runs this uh, shelter or drop-in center for homeless youth. Here, what I saw was also Lily's compassion and her caring and her very engaging nature. And that too really fits that character combined with a resourcefulness she has. A resourcefulness that she gains in this episode. Cordelia's comment to Xander, oh, Mr. Faithful, and she's worried about him having met someone, seems like a tiny foreshadowing to the fact that Xander will not be faithful to her and how devastating that will be. Ken's comment to Buffy about trying so hard to disappear. You got your wish. I am wondering, is that going to be a theme for the season? Of course, we will have the episode The Wish, which is all about wish fulfillment and how dangerous that can be. Whether that also fits other episodes, I am excited to find out as I'm thinking ahead. I'm not sure it it does, but it's an intriguing idea, something to look at. The whole experience of this underworld, I feel, was a deliberate foreshadowing because we will find out when Angel comes back that he was in another dimension, a sort of hell, and that time did in fact move differently there. So I, I feel like that's a very deliberate setting up of that. Quick note on Ken, the actor who plays him, Carlos, uh, I don't know how you say the na- last name, Jacot, J-A-C-O-T-T, is also in an episode of Angel and an episode of Firefly, the third show Joss Whedon started within that same time frame. And uh, he will play not the same character, but there will be similarities where he initially seems like an ally and a nice guy and then betrays. I always enjoy watching for those actors who are in all three shows. In other commentaries, Joss Whedon has called them his hat trick, like in hockey, I guess, where someone gets three consecutive goals. The fact that he was able to have an actor in all three of his shows. And finally, this theme of identity and choosing your identity does run through season two. The things that come to mind immediately are faith, figuring out who she is as the slayer, how that fits with her life as a whole, making choices. Buffy also struggling with her role as the slayer, seeing herself reflected in faith, both both of them kind of reflect reflecting each other. We also have the identity of the Watchers Council which so far anyway has has seemed at least not evil and we will explore the identity of the council what it does why it does what it does and how it ultimately from Buffy's perspective and Giles perspective betrays them so I do see that as foreshadowed here so that is it for the spoilers and for this episode thank you again for listening I do hope you'll join Join me next Monday for Dead Man's Party when Buffy has a rocky reunion with her friends as zombies invade Sunnydale. Music for this episode was composed and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman LLC, copyright 2020. All rights reserved.